CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is Carpe Consensus. Join hosts. Ben Schiller and Danny Nelson as they seize the world of crypto. Hello and welcome to Carpe Consensus. This is a podcast from the Coindesk Podcast Network and I am Benjamin Schiller. I am the Features and Opinion Editor here at Coindesk and joining me today is Danny Nelson. He is a reporter here. Danny? Hello. Are you over the FTX trial yet? Yes, uh, now more than a week out. I've gotten through most of my inbox. Uh, everything was deleted. Nothing was read. And I'm ready to return to civilian life. Good. So if you send Danny an email, uh, just know this. He won't actually read it. So That's uh, don't bother with that. Yeah, good. And are you caught up with sleep as well? Uh, you were quite sleep deprived last uh, week. Oh, I'm getting at least eight hours a night, maybe even more. It's very unnatural for me at this point. Well, you're still a growing boy, so uh, you need to get your sleep. Exactly. Good. So we're going to discuss the small matter of El Salvador today. That's uh, obviously the first country in the world to accept Bitcoin as legal tender. And we are joined by Jonathan Martin. He is a graduate student at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. And he spent a, a good few weeks and months down there in El Salvador looking at the experiment from the ground. And we want to check in with him about his takeaways from experience and see what has been learned from, from down there. So Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So just take us to the beginning. I mean, why did you want to go to El Salvador in the first place? Yeah, I am a passionate Bitcoiner. And I had this question in my mind outside of people who have read the Bitcoin standard or who are have a low time preference for their money and are investing for years or decades in the currency, hoping that it goes up in value. Do people actually care about it, right? Your average person doesn't have a background in fiscal or monetary policy, isn't a business school student, isn't a Bitcoiner. Uh, and it was kind of testing this thesis, like is adoption actually happening on the ground? And is the story being told on Twitter by people promoting some of the policies of Nayib Bukele? Is it true? For me, it was, it, it was a fun experience immersing myself in uh, the culture in El Salvador. They're very kind, welcoming people. And the short answer is uh, adoption is still very much in its infancy. Right. So we want to explore that, that kind of question here. I mean, is there kind of a, a mismatch or a disconnect between the kind of Western perception of what is happening there or what we want it to happen there and what is actually going on in the ground? Uh, and do you think that that thesis is broadly true? I mean, has the Bitcoin community sort of imagined something is happening in El Salvador that's maybe not happening? And just talk about that kind of mismatch in perception between the local view of it and the outside view of it. 
Yeah, you know, a big part of Bitcoin adoption is President Bukele trying to rebrand the country, right? El Salvador, just talking to some of my classmates here at Wharton, when I told them I was going down uh, to the country, they're all like, oh, is it safe? Uh, is it a safe place to go? And, you know, I, I think one of the most interesting conversations I had was with John Denny, who started uh, me premier Bitcoin, my first Bitcoin. He arrived soon after the law was enacted in 2021, September 2021. And he said adoption was close to zero when he got there. Like no one was using Bitcoin at all. Uh, and now you do see some people here and there trying to impl implement Bitcoin outside of El Zante. It's a slow process. Uh, and I think it's still going to be decade plus before more, more people are adopting the currency. And the key to adoption really probably is education, right? People understanding what are the benefits of investing in a de deflationary currency, something that will go up in value over time versus, you know, fiat that loses its purchasing power over time. Your average person that's hand to mouth, uh, I think something like 70% of El Salvador is, is unbanked. To them, it's just, can I put food on the table? Can, can I eat tonight? Can I pay my rent? Can I put gas in my motorcycle? And for that crowd, I think it still will be a while until they care. Uh, for me, it was very interesting to see uh, when I was successful in using Bitcoin at different stores, both in San Salvador and on the beach, it tended to skew younger, it tended to be people that teenagers or people in their early 20s that are using Bitcoin. So for, to me, that's a bullish signal. And sure, the majority of wealth may be held with people over the age of 65. But over time, as these uh, younger people who are digital natives see the benefits of Bitcoin, I think that's really what's going to spur adoption in the long run. How large is that community of, I don't know, expats, maybe you'd call them, of people who are not from El Salvador, but have moved to El Salvador with ideas for companies' intentions of building up the infrastructure that would support a Bitcoin economy? Yeah, I attended a number of Bitcoin events. There's groups both in Telegram and WhatsApp that you can uh, get plugged into, and especially the Bitcoin Embassy, which is this someone's house in San Salvador where they help people on board to get a El Salvador passport on residency documents, try to help kind of facilitate the movement of Westerners from their home countries into the South American country. So I think that at present, it's a pretty small community, a couple hundred people, mostly on the beach and in the capital city. But towns like Berlin in El Salvador also have growing communities. So I think with time, more people passionate Bitcoiners globally uh, we'll, we'll see it as a destination city, destination country. At present, it's a small community. And I think uh, a lot of people tended to have sort of disagreements with their home government policies. There's a number of Canadians uh, who were caught up in the trucker situation when truckers were being forced to take the vaccine and had their bank accounts frozen, decided to leave their country. So there's a lot of people who had sort of political disagreements. And from that lens, it definitely skewed towards people who are, are, are kind of more in the margins. Over time, I think as Bitcoin integrates more into the economy and the economy becomes increasingly Bitcoin backed, it'll become increasingly interesting to foreign investors and foreign entrepreneurs to move down there uh, if the Bitcoin thesis is proven to be true and it does become this alternative reserve asset or potentially a global reserve currency with time. So just take us back to the uh, program that Bukele has instituted there. So as well as the law, there's also distribution of wallets to citizens and an airdrop of Bitcoin to those wallets. Uh, I mean, how is that program going? And is it leading to people accessing their wallets and, and spending their Bitcoin? Yeah, you know, your, your average Salvadoran doesn't care. 
that's my frank assessment. Just in talking to the CEO of Diddle Banks, this guy named Guillermo, he was saying that uh, when, when the wallet program was rolled out, you saw this spike in activity, right? Because all this can be tracked on chain. But most of it was people going straight to the first Chivo ATM they could find and taking their $30 in Bitcoin and transferring it into fiat. So people need to be slowly integrated into the Bitcoin network. And that was kind of Guillermo's whole thrust was trying to find ways to create, you know, using his terminology, a Trojan horse, where people are first given services they don't have, access to ATMs, a way to save on their phone. And over time, they can slowly be educated on the benefits of saving in Satoshis versus in fiat. So it's, it's going to be a slow process. I think most likely way that you'd see hyper Bitcoinization or more rapid adoption would be increasing weakness in the U.S. dollar. Uh, but that's something that is hard to kind of predict or, or you know, figure out what's the time frame when these things will happen. So I think education is the key. John Denny has a program with the Ministry of Education to give both teachers and students the same education that he, that he provides with his Me Premier Bitcoin diploma. He has a 10-week program where when you graduate, you actually get a diploma, which he views as something that's going to be uh, extremely valuable on people's resumes as the Bitcoin economy continues to grow. And implementing the same sort of thing at schools over time with young people will lead to adoption. Right. I mean, this sort of narrative around hard money that Bitcoin is, is a better hedge against inflation than uh, fiat currency. I mean, isn't that sort of somewhat undercut by what we've seen in the Bitcoin price as the you know, law was being implemented, that it was falling, doesn't that sort of dissuade people from holding onto their Bitcoin if it's not really hard money in terms of the market price? Absolutely. And you know, I would say myself as a Bitcoiner, I was always hesitant to use Satoshis, right? Because I'm someone that thinks that it's going to continue to go up in value and hit astronomical highs within 15 years or so. Uh, but you know, your average person, if you're just looking at the price of Bitcoin and the volatility inherent to the asset, you might ask yourself, why, why do I want to keep this, right? When this is something that, when the law was introduced, dropped precipitously in value uh, soon after. So it, it's a great point. Uh, I think in the near term, people that are literally hand to mouth, it doesn't really provide a benefit necessarily at present, right? I think we need Bitcoin to stop acting like an emerging market currency. You know, it needs to mature, it needs to grow. Uh, and this is something that major proponents like Michael Saylor have talked about, like hopefully this bull market and this cycle is when it grows up and becomes an asset that Wall Street firms outside of BlackRock and Wall Street invest in. And, and I think that for your average Salvadoran, they needed a way to save outside of just holding dollar bills. Very few people have access to the banking system. Uh, so educating people on the benefits of like, you know, instead of using your paycheck and keeping that money and knowing the long term that's going to go up in value, that change in mindset is is more important, I think, than actually teaching people on, on what is inherent to Bitcoin and the Bitcoin network, right? It's a change in mindset of becoming a saver as opposed to someone that is just spending money that they have as soon as they get it. Uh, and I think that's really going to be central to adoption. It's more so about financial literacy than it is about Bitcoin literacy. So Ben and I, and I think you as well, we've all been in this space, well, in the Bitcoin space for a while developing our own philosophies around it. For myself, I think alongside just using Bitcoin on the internet and uh, experiencing, let's just say, the power of permissionless money. And then I link that up with reading the white paper and I start to just have uh, understand this vision of peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash. 
how much of a philosophy is being developed in El Salvador that you could notice? Like, are people aware of the philosophical underpinnings of Bitcoin? Or is it even relevant to the conversation? Like, do we need a purist point of view for this? The short answer is no. People know very little about Bitcoin outside of the fact that uh, it's this new magical internet money. Uh, very few, I think, fully appreciate the problem that Bitcoin is solving, right? You know, why it was introduced in 2009. So that honestly, I don't know how important it is for people to fully understand how the network operates and the place that was coming from originally, from the creator or creators of Bitcoin, is Satoshi Nakamoto. Uh, I think it's more so what's important is it needs to work. It needs to be reliable, right? And, and there needs to be an ecosystem, both of vendors and of people spending their money, consumers, that's fluid, right? Because at present, if you walk into uh, Super Selecto, which is a supermarket chain in El Salvador, their point of sale devices don't have Bitcoin integrations, right? So the ecosystem is still very small, right? So it's, it's still very much in the margins where it's, it's only kind of passionate Bitcoiners, now a few vendors using Bitcoin, but people still very much prefer dollars, right? Especially the, the, the major chains. So I think it's going to take time. You know, the story is still being written. I think it's exited the stage of being an experiment. Now it's sort of, we've gone from being an infant to being a toddler uh, in El Salvador in terms of Bitcoin adoption. So it's still a question of, you know, at scale, can an economy function with an asset backing it that's a, that can be extremely volatile, right? That can decrease 80% in value in a matter of months. And that is still something that I think the story is still going to unfold. So it sounds like there was maybe less adoption and maybe less usage than you thought there might have been. But were there cases during your travels there that you said, well, this is surprising. Uh, people are using it. There is a more positive story here. I mean, can you point to any uh, transactions or incidents like that? There was a woman who I befriended. her. She goes by Sandy Waves on Twitter. And she uh, lives on Bitcoin Beach. And she described how uh, she was introduced to the asset by an expat who was using a Bitcoin ATM. And she was like, hey, what is this? So, you know, wh why are people using this? And, you know, she does not have a background in uh, monetary policy or, you know, but she understands the network extremely deeply, right? Has a deep understanding of, you know, the benefits of having a hard money versus a, a money that is slowly losing its purchasing power or, or rapidly lo losing its purchasing power like fiat. And I think once you start having people that don't necessarily uh, have that sort of evangelism or more formal education, understanding the importance of the network, I think that's when you, uh, it's sort of a sign that, that the speed of adoption is increasing, right? And she now serves as one of kind of the main points of contact for helping expats rent a house, get their Salvadoran uh, residency documents, et cetera. So, you know, to answer your question, I think that Bitcoin Beach and El Tunco you find more expats there than you do in San Salvador, right? There tends to be a larger community there. That's where you see more of sort of this circular Bitcoin ecosystem developing, right? Versus just kind of here and there in San Salvador, you see people using Bitcoin, uh, but it's, it's, it's pretty prevalent in some of these other places. It looks like we might be coming out of crypto winter, I don't know, with discussion about the ETF heating up and a lot of other things. Bitcoin's rallying, a lot of other tokens, which I'm sure you don't care about, are rallying. But to talk about the effect that the prolonged winter may have had, do you think that that turned off people to Bitcoin? And how can the coming bull run, if there is one, change that? 
like our opinions already set in stone. Bitcoin has been somewhat politicized in El Salvador. Some people refer to it as Bukele's money. And I think what you're touching upon, you know, he was he was buying sort of near the top. I think, you know, they're still in the red on, on their nation state Bitcoin investment. I think this next bull run is when it could become much more widespread, right? People that aren't Bitcoiners get excited about it when price is going up. So when numbers go up, I think that that's going to be a catalyst for more of your average Salvadorans to say, hey, maybe this is something that you know I should invest in, uh, something that I may want to add to my portfolio. Speaking more about the people that have funds, you know, have bank accounts, right? Uh, and honestly, one of the biggest hurdles to adoption is the banking system itself. I've talked to some individuals that, that work in the banking sector, and they indicated that uh, there's a lot of interest among bankers to sell Bitcoin OTC, but there's relationships with corresponding banks in the United States on Wall Street, which is kind of hindered or limited because the banks in the US have been hesitant. It's, it's, it's unclear how long it'll take until it's accepted in the US. And in a lot of ways, when Wall Street catches a cold, the rest of the world sneezes, and 25% of banking revenues in El Salvador are remittances, right? So if they were to start selling Bitcoin OTC uh, and damage the relationships you know, with the US, that would be a worst case scenario. So it's led to a lot of hesitation selling Bitcoin OTC in El Salvador. But I think once it's more integrated with the economy, once it's easier to buy Bitcoin, uh, these products are sold in parallel. There's point of sale devices that have debit, credit, and also lightning integrations, uh, just making it easier for the ecosystem, lubricating the ecosystem. That's when we see more adoption, right? So at present, there's still some hurdles in place, but the train is moving. You can see the process unfolding. It'll just still probably be a matter of time until Bitcoin is more commonplace used by your average citizen. So you mentioned that uh, Bitcoin is being politicized, that it's uh, Bukele's money. Does that imply that if Bukele was to lose power, Bitcoin might become less important in the economy? That's a major question I still have. You know, people that I talk to think that he's easily going to win the 2024 election and be reelected. He's the most popular leader in South America. His security policies, you know, it's, it's somewhat complicated. Sure, you know, there, there's certainly questions about human rights. And it, it's something that people tend to tiptoe around. It's, it's, you know, the society in El Salvador is definitely bifurcated between the haves and have-nots, much more so than the U.S. It's, it's, it's very palpable. If Bukele were to lose, it's, I don't know if that would halt the trajectory the country is currently on with regards to Bitcoin because it is decentralized, right? You know, it's, it circumvents, you know, authorities. That's the whole point of the network, right? The supernatural currency that has this ability to uh, be permissionless and censorship resistant. So the ecosystem is growing. Even if they were to outlaw Bitcoin, what's keeping people from running a node in their house or having Bitcoin on their cell phone? And I think the train has already left the station. And as numbers go up, people get more excited about it. So even if Bukele were not to be reelected, I think El Salvador would continue on trajectory. It just wouldn't be legal tender. It'd be kind of more in the margins than it is currently. I mean, I do find it a little personally strange that we are reliant on a nation state to further uh, Bitcoin adoption, uh, just like we're dependent on uh, you know, mainstream financial institutions to push Bitcoin as well. I mean, this is sort of an anathema to the whole idea of Bitcoin in the first place. As you say, it's decentralized and it's supposed to be a ground up revolution. So um, it does seem a little bit strange. 
Uh, I mean, are there other countries in the wings that are looking at El Salvador as a possible model for uh, adopting Bitcoin? Uh, do you see any uh, talk of that these days? I mean, it seems like there was a conversation around that at a time when they instituted the law, but it doesn't seem like many nation states are now ganging up to follow this course. It's a great question. Uh, I think it could spread in Central America and in Latin America to other countries. That's one of the goals of me, Premier Bitcoin, is to expand the program from just Salvadoran high schools to uh, high schools all around Latin America and uh, mm. grow the ecosystem from the ground up by educating the youth. <laughs> I heard a really interesting story uh, from an expat from France who had some other friends who went to the Central African Republic You know when they announced that they were adopting Bitcoin. And there's, there's some real questions about the legitimacy of that legislation and whether it's just a nation state level pump and dump scheme. Right. So in, in this upcoming bull run, uh, Bitcoin is now legal tender. Right. It's not just this magical Internet money, uh, you, you know, that nerds like myself use online. Right. It's, it's now you can actually go in a store and, and, and do things with it in El Salvador, even even if it's not commonplace. It, and that leads to additional complexity when you have this next wave of fraud, which is inevitable in my mind when it comes to Bitcoin, when it's actually a legal tender. So it's 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 going to be interesting to see how it unfolds over this next you know cycle after the halving in April 2024. But the Bitcoin story is extremely fascinating in, in the sense that in 14 years we went from Bitcoin being used you know its first use case being for illicit goods on the Silk Road right to now we have Larry Fink going on TV calling it a monetary asset of global importance and calling it a you know flight to safety. So I think with time. Bukele will be proven right. And sure, I may be biased as a Bitcoiner, but El Salvador is a tiny economy. You know, their GDP is like 29 billion. You know, Apple's revenue is 81 billion, right? So it's, it's, it's in, inconsequential in the global scene. But with time, I, I think El Salvador will be a template for global adoption with time. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure to talk to you and hear the latest on what's happening in El Salvador and with your own work on the Bitcoin subject. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Jonathan. So that was Jonathan Martin. He's a graduate student at the Wharton School. Uh, he spent a long summer in El Salvador checking out the adoption scene for Bitcoin there. And uh, we've been uh, publishing his pieces on Coindesk.com, and we will link to them in the show notes. And thank you very much for listening to Carpe Consensus, and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Carpe Consensus is a Coindesk production, executive produced by Jared Schwartz, and produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line Carpe Consensus. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 